Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Ve salatu ve selamu ala seyyidina Muhammed. Seyyidil evvelin ve ahirin ve ala alihi ve sahbetihi ecma'in. Rabbi şrahi sadri ve sirli emri ve ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Allahumma salli ve sallim ve barak aleyhi fil evvelin ve fil ahirin ve fil mal'il a'la ya rabbil alamin. We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send peace and blessings upon uh, our beloved messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam upon his blessed family, his companions, and those who follow them until the end of time. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. The, the, the topic that I was asked to discuss was the struggles of American Muslims. I'm going to keep it within the context of what we're dealing with in America. Uh, it, is, it is the sunnah of the Prophet to begin with the immediate area that he would be engaged with. So in Mecca, he deals with issue related to Mecca and Medina. Immediately when he comes to Medina, he addresses issues that are facing the society in Medina. And that's the nature of prophets, that they would speak to their people. Oftentimes, we create this broad messaging of concern about the ummah and concern about the world where we ourselves may be acutely divided as a Muslim community in our own city. So it would be hypocritical to talk about international Muslim unity if I don't get along, say, with a masjid that's five miles away. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu says in Surah Al-Saf, why do you say what you don't do? So oftentimes we, we may tend to worry about big issues, but if we're not handling the local issues and the minor issues, we may fall into a state of hypocrisy. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Second thing is that in, in the community in America, we've seen a projection of Islam that's rooted at times simply for, the, for acquiring social utility. Islamic Dawah in some ways has become very utilitarian. And that runs counter to the prophets. Utilitarian meaning, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Like, is it going to bring me closer to power? Is it going to uh, give me a good job? Is it going to somehow advance me? What's in it for me? For the younger generation, how many likes can I get? How many followers can I have? But we see that the Prophets in the Qur'an لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا The Prophets aren't about Prophet. All Prophets were non-Prophet, interestingly enough. And the, the outcome of utilitarian da'wah is that you will have a community that can no longer struggle, can no longer face opposition, can no longer stand to deal with adversity. Another outcome of utilitarianism and da'wah is a large number of divisions within the community. Because if it's for Allah, we're going to be together. But if it's for dunya, we're not going to be together. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the Sahaba in the Qur'an, very beautifully, وَكُنْتُمْ أَعْدَى You were enemies. فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ and Allah brought you together. 
and you became by the blessings of God, you became like a family. If we look at the state of the American Muslim community, we can say that one of the things that we are extremely successful at, highly accomplished, and very professional is hating each other. We do it good. We do it well. So if we're going to talk about some of the challenges that we need to face, we need to start with ourselves. We love to project it on other people. And, and that is anyone that has a startup involved in any type of business, you know that's a recipe for failure. I would like to talk about the challenges that we face in light of three chapters of the Qur'an. The first chapter is Surat Al-Alaq. The second chapter is Surat Al-Mudathir. And the third chapter is Surat Al-Muzammil. And as you know, these are the early chapters sent to Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because we need to appreciate the fact that our young American Muslim community are very much emergent in their religious identity. And they are actually synthesizing their American cultural identity and understanding with their cultural and ethnic identity as well as their religious realities. And I think they have a great potential, alhamdulillah, because I think they will be really uh, well-rounded, inshallah, and able to benefit people more. So I'd like to talk about those principles, inshallah, and then tomorrow we'll go through Surah Al-Hujurat, what some of our mashaykh used to call Surah Al-Adab, the chapter on etiquette. How do we interact, how do we treat each other as Muslims? So Surah Al-Alaq is a very profound chapter. We know that this is the first few verses sent to Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Surah Al-Fatiha is the first chapter sent to Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then comes Mudathir, and then comes Muzammil. And within the body of these chapters, outside of Fatiha, because Surah Al-Fatiha is kind of the foundation of everything, we find some principles that will help us as we struggle. Because a community that's rooted in utilitarianism will not be able to struggle, as I said earlier, will not be able to be together because it's not for Allah, it's for something else. And third, if it is invested in itself and invested in its own agency, it will not be able to appreciate the paradox of trials and tests. Sometimes young Muslims, they come to me like, you know, everyone's telling me like in converts, like I become Muslim, everything will fix itself. No, it won't. Anyone who claims to be a follower of the prophets will be tested. That's the reality, internally and externally. And we see over and over in the Qur'an the idea of tests being a means for someone to understand their own spiritual state and their, to gauge their relationship with God. And then secondly, for their commitment to be exposed. وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُولٌ Allah said, the Prophet is only a messenger. If he dies or if he's injured, are you going to flee? Is that a test that's going to break you? When the Qibla is changed, the direction of the Qibla is changed. قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجَهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that 
Allah said that the Qibla has been changed so we can make it apparent those who are going to truly follow the Messenger and those who are going to turn on their heels. Al-Isra wa Mi'raj is a tremendous test for the companions and the followers of the Prophet So tests are important. الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ Sorry, this is a different qira'ah. لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا وَأَحْسَنَ عَمَلًا Allah says we created life and death, you can be tested. But a community that's simply rooting its da'wah and its work and its religious effort in feeding itself will not be able to appreciate tests. Allah says, Like you're moving from hal ila hal, from stations to stations. So you're constantly going to experience adversity and happiness and success. But if we're all about Islam is awesome, Islam is cool, like being Muslim, everything's going to work for you. No, everything will work for us hopefully in the hereafter. But in this life, the dunya is a place of challenge. That's reality. So it's important that we anchor ourselves in some, some real intrinsic religious fundamentals so that we can shelter success and failure. That's how life works. So let's look at these chapters and some of the lessons that we take as a community, understanding that just because I say I'm a Muslim doesn't suddenly mean everything is going to work. Allah says, do people think that they will claim belief and not be tested? It has to happen. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ, this paradox is hard to deal with. Now Muslims are upset. Trump's in office. All these bad things are happening in the world. Mata Nasrullah. When will the help of Allah come? Allah inna Nasrullah The help of Allah is close. Don't let the world become what moves your heart. La ta'aburul ahwal, balu'bud rabbal ahwal. One of our teachers used to say, like, don't worship situations. Worship the Lord of all situations. So the Prophet Ali والسلام, when he was asked. Who's tested the most? Al-Anbiya Uthumma Salihun. The prophets and then the righteous. It just comes with it. It's part of the process. Trust the process. And the Prophet said, Kamarawahu Muslim, Man min. Whoever Allah intends good for, test them. So there are three and a number of other signs, but there are three important signs that we have perhaps lost the plot, man, and made religion about everything but God. Number one is, we love to create disunity in the name of the truth. And this is a big fitna. Number two is, we can't struggle. Ibadah is a burden. And number three, and this is what impacts a lot of people, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm by no means telling you I'm doing this perfectly either. We cannot 
see beyond the paradox of tragedy and trauma and hardship. So you'll find people say like, you know, my wife is sick. Does God hate me? Or my husband's sick. Didn't the Prophet lose his wife? Didn't the Prophet lose his uncle? Didn't the Prophet lose his city? But could you say that God hated the Prophet? So where are you, where are you getting that from? That's why Sayyidina Ali used to say, La tafrah bil ghina wa la taqnu bil faqar. Sayyidina Ali used to say, Don't get happy if you're rich and don't get sad if you're poor. And be with Allah. Imam Ibn Ta'ala Skandri in Al Hikam, he said, Sawabukul himami la tukhriku aswar al aqdar. He said, Your passion and your emotions can never, like, you're really, really anxious about something, is not going to change qada and qadr. Kun fayakun. And that's why the Quraysh. If you think about the three things that I just said, they're really good at that. Number one, disunity. They were able to create problems amongst themselves. Allah said, they were so divided, O Muhammad, if you had spent everything in the earth to bring them together, you couldn't have you wouldn't have brought them together. Allah brought them together. That's how disunified they were. How many tribes did they have? Number two, they weren't able to struggle. Allah says, Right, Humaza, Allah describes people of Quraysh as people who addada, like they count their money, man. They're about opulence. You see these people, their, their, their wealth, and their acquirement of wealth and opulence has caused them to lose the plot of life. They're not able to struggle. The hypocrites, they pray, but when they pray, it's, it's for exhibition. It's to be seen of people. And they remember Allah a little. So, The ayat means they remember people a lot. It's always what people think, people, people, people. people. But they lose Allah in the situation. Where the Salih is the one who worships as though they see Allah. I don't see the people. And then the third we mentioned is there is a fundamental problem with God's plan. Like the song. There is a fundamental problem with what God has given me. And this doesn't only impact sinful people. To be honest with you, I see it more amongst religious people. Because oftentimes a religious person, especially if they haven't been taught by the ulama, they confuse religion with power. So religion is a step towards power. I control the mosque. I can dictate who's who. I want to push you know, my weight around. What does that have to do with religion? Man Allah. Prophet said, whoever humbles himself for God, God raises them. We raise who we want. We see the Quraysh, they have a problem with qada. Allah says in Surah Al-Zukhruf, In Surah Al-Zukhruf, they said, Why did Allah make you a prophet? They have a problem with qada. They have a problem with God's plan. Why did he make you a prophet? He should have made someone from the two great cities a prophet. Yathrib, Medina, or Ta'if. So their, their investment in their personal investment 
and their lack of selflessness causes them to question God's plan for them. Whereas a believer, we just went through this in Eid, is قَالَ لَهُ رَبُّهُ أَسْلِمْ قَالَ أَسْلَمْتُ لِرَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ When Allah said to Ibrahim, submit, I'm good, okay. But the point I'm trying to make is uh, the danger of an American Muslim community that's only about the likes and only about being accepted at all costs. Don't get me wrong, there is a strategy in working with people, coalition building, I'm about it. But not to the point where I sacrifice my foundational, intrinsic ethics and religious beliefs. And we tell young people, and we push on them all the time about Islam is going to like make everything fine, it's going to work for you in your personal life. Maybe Islam is always going to work. Whether you're going through hardship or success, Islam is working. But hardship and success for the believer are an opportunity to understand the asrar of Allah, the secrets that God has for them. And that's why the beginning of the Prophet's life, if you were really to try to encapsulate it, and this is very important for converts, man, is that the early part of the Prophet's life is about how to manage tragedy. He loses his father, he loses his mother. In America, there are, there are studies that show a single parent child can succeed, but a parent that's lost both children, and that puts you in a very, very difficult situation uh, um, statistically. Prophet loses both. Loses his grandfather, loses his wife, loses his uncle, loses his city, loses everything, but gains everything. Now we try to, we tend to tie our loss into religious failure, and that's not necessarily true. And that's why the Prophet said, I'm surprised, I'm amazed, I'm excited about the believer. Because the believer, everything for the believer is good. If the believer is blessed, he or she is thankful, and that's good for him or her. If he or she is tested, they have resilience, and that's good for him or her. So we cannot allow the the time and the age and the things that are happening to impact us in the way that our relationship with Allah should impact us and our family and our children and our wives and our spouses. Those are things that are intrinsic to us. But the situations that we move through, if we're just looking for utility, just looking for a come up, just looking to get some cool pictures or be on the Interfaith Council, why do you want to be on the Interfaith Council? To call to God? Or just to be like, I'm cool. If it's I'm cool, this is what I'm talking about. Why do you want to be the masjid president? Just so you can flex your power or to really serve, for example, the most vulnerable in the Muslim community, to look after the rights of immigrants, to put a Black Lives Matter sign in front of your masjid, then I feel you. But if it's not about struggle and embracing struggle, why do you want to learn Islam? To be a sheikh, subhanAllah, to have authority and have power. I remember when I finished uh, you know, we study different qiraat in Egypt, alhamdulillah. And my teacher, I said, you know, now, mashallah, I finished this riwayah of Hafs. Now, inshallah, I'm going to be like, you know, he said, you're going to be what? He said, did you learn this to be or did you learn this to serve? I said, oh, man, I made a big mistake. He said, you learn to serve, not to be. 
The Prophet said the master of the people is their servant. So when there's the gain of dunya and the gain of utility in my religious work, that is antithetical to the Prophet and his da'wah. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that takes us into these three powerful chapters that will help us think about some challenges that we may have, insha'Allah. Surah Al-Alaq, Surah Al-Mudathir, Surah Al-Muzammah. We know that the Prophet Wasallam. the first thing we should think about is appreciating opportunities for introspection. First hadith we should all learn. Actions are based on intention. Actions are rewarded by intention. Actually, the meaning of the hadith. Al-Jazam and Jins Al-Amal, we say in fiqh, the reward is based on the quality of the deed, the internal quality. So we know that the Prophet ﷺ and the long hadith found in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, Hubbiba ilayhi al-khala. That early on, the Prophet loved to be alone. When was the last time you were alone with yourself? Without a phone. When was the last time I was alone with myself? People take their phone in the restroom now, man. Spend hours in the, phone, in the restroom, man. Praying Angry Birds and Fortnite. Checking the NASDAQ. But wouldn't have we truly been alone and really ask ourselves about who we are, what's intrinsic to us, what, what, are, what, are, what are the main ingredients of our personality? The Prophet Sallallahu is given the love of al-khala' to be alone. And that's why Imam Ibn Ta'ala, he said in al-hikam, ma, there's nothing more beneficial for the revival of the heart than al-azla, taking time for self-care. And to look into yourself and audit yourselves. We know that Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he said very famously, Evaluate yourself before you're evalu evaluated. Audit yourself before God audits you. So one of the questions that we ask in community organizing is, who are you? So who are you? What roles, what, what hats do you wear in life? And once I'm able to answer that question, then I can find out what's really not that important, what's really important. You should think about this in two ways. Your sphere of influence and your sphere of concern. Sphere of influence, like my kids, man. Sphere of influence is my diet. Sphere of influence is my education. Sphere of influence are those things that I can directly impact. What are those in your life? Sphere of concern is, you know, the unity of the Muslim Ummah, what's happening in the world, that sphere of concern. Can I really influence those things implicit, explicitly? It's hard unless I have family there, or I have friends there, if I'm working with an organization, like a relief organization. We tend to find people confuse these. So I met a brother once, he was telling me, I'm so worried about those children overseas. I knew that he and his wife were having some problems. I'm so worried about those kids overseas. Oh my gosh. I said, hey man, when's the last time you spent time with your son? Oh my son, he's a shaitan. I was a billah. My son is lost. See that? 
But where is your influence? Where is your impact? And that's why Ibn Qayyim said, Rahimahullah, one of the tricks of shaitan is to confuse the very important with the not important. Imam Sidi Zaruq in Al Qawa'id Tasawwuf, one of the great scholars, Shaykh al Islam, he said, Shatnul Salihin. He said, Taqdeemul Aham ala al Muhim, Shatnul Salikin Da'ima. He says, Rahimahullah, that the state of the true friends of God is that what's very important is always given priority first. And that's why you can understand Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Jibreel. When anyone asks the Prophet or engages the Prophet on issues that don't lead to action, he doesn't answer the question usually or he directs it to action. So for example, in Medina, in Sahih al-Bukhari, the man comes to Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's a very stupid question. <laughs> when is the day of judgment? Like in Medina, we're not in Mecca anymore. Like we've all been Muslim for over like 19 years. And this guy's asking, when is the hour? Eschatology gone crazy. You know, you can imagine now if someone walked in a mosque, when is the hour? We'd lose our minds, man. The brother would never come back to the masjid. Because we wouldn't be prophetic in how we dealt him. We would judge him and then we would treat him based on that ju judgment. But the Prophet says, Ma What did you prepare for it? Look how he reverses a weird question and turns it into something that the guy can influence. This happens over and over and over and over again. Prophet is always وسلم, getting people to think about what you can really impact. And that's why the great Sahaba are people that can be vulnerable and honest. Honesty and prophethood can't go together. So we see in the hadith of Jibreel, when Jibreel asked the Prophet, what's Islam? Prophet gives a long answer. What's Iman? Prophet gives an answer. What's Ihsan? Prophet gives an answer. When will be the hour? What does the Prophet say? Ma mas'udu anha I don't know and you don't know. Look at that. Because that's just going to be like, just going to like, you know, go into some cool like hipster turmeric latte deconstructionalism, man. Let's just deconstruct the ummah. Ain't nobody got time for that. So the Prophet said, I don't know and you don't know. But when he asked the Prophet, Ma amaratuha, what are the signs? Then the Prophet said, the signs are this, 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 this. Because when people see the signs of the hour, it does what? It wakes them up. It leads to action. So the Prophet in his introspection, and it's incredible that we usually experience our greatest moments of growth that prepare us for public life away from the public. And we usually experience our most personal failures trying to be successful in public. So the first thing that we should think about is being honest with ourselves. Al-Muhasaba. That's the first core component of a Muslim personality. Interrogation. Looking into myself. Thinking about the good and bad that I have. Being thankful for the good 
and correcting the evil. That's why Ibn Arabi, Shaykh al-Akbar, he said in Futahat al-Makiyyah, how many of the great ulama he knew that they would keep with them a small ledger and they would write the good that they've done and the bad that they've done at the end of the day. And then they would take themselves into account. So like once a week, sit back and ask yourself who you are. What are your core ingredients? What are the good qualities that you have? What are the bad qualities that you have? And you know why that's important? Because we live in an age now where we primarily construct our identity based on how other people react to us. And that's a problem. The second thing is that after he loved isolation, Sayyidina Jibreel finally descends to the Prophet وسلم, and he says, Iqra, ma'ana biqari, iqra, ma'ana biqari, iqra, ma'ana biqari. Read, read, read. I can't read, I can't read, I can't read. Iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq khalaq al-insana min alaq. In these first few verses of Shulta Ala, come to the Prophet And what do we learn? The second major quality that we should think about as a challenge for the Muslim community is learning. And there are really three or four challenges that I can talk about around learning, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Number one is the lack of an organized curriculum in the English language for young American Muslims to learn orthodoxy. And old American Muslims, old folks need to learn too. But you don't have something that takes you from like A to Z, alif to ya. What we have are one-off lectures, Snapchat imam. We have like moments of like disorganized education. But we don't have something that will take us through like the 11 uloom that most people should know, the fard ain, the obligations that someone should learn. This is really frustrating for converts. So the first is, knowledge needs to be organized. It needs to be systematic. Number two, oftentimes we learn knowledge from religious people, but those religious people will use that knowledge to divide us or to control us, to create fitna. That's a problem. What, what should be the outcome of learning? Disunity or unity? Amongst the believers. We see the Sahaba, عليهم, they were disunited. They, they, they experienced acute disunity. But they learned with Prophet Muhammad and they studied with Prophet Muhammad and they came out of those study circles together. Now we attend courses in different places or sit with different people we don't come out with a greater, if we, don't, if we don't come out with a greater commitment to our unity and being together, then we haven't learned properly. Look at Imam al-Maziri al-Maliki. My training is in the Maliki school. Al-Maziri is considered one of the great, great scholars of our madhab. He's like Ibn Abidin to the Sadat al-Hanafiyyah. The Maliki school, because we read, it's commendable to read with the Qira'ah of Ahl Medina. 
Most people you read with the Qirat of Ahl Kufa. Hafs and Asim. Asim can Kufiyan. Asim, he's Kufi. But Nafi', Sayyidina Imam Nafi' is Madani. In the school of Medina, we don't read with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in Salah. That's how it was related to us. So, Allahu Akbar, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. In the school of the Kufiyin, Allahu Akbar, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. In the Maliki Madhab, it's considered makruh to read Bismillah Rahman Rahim in Salah. Makruh means permissible, but disliked. Except in one situation. If you as a Maliki pray with a Shafi or Hanbali, we know Sadat al-Ahnaf, they're in the middle, they say it silently, barely, can barely hear it. But if we were to pray with the Hanafi, a Hanbari or Shafi'i, Mara'atan lil khilaf, as our scholars mentioned, to preserve the unity of the community, we should say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Look, purpose of the knowledge. So Al-Maziri Al-Maliki, the great jurist, he was actually from Sicily, his origins are Italian, you know the Muslims were in Italy for almost five, six hundred years. One of his students comes to visit him in a madrasa ran by the Shafi'iyah. And he prays behind Al-Maziri. So he's thinking, wow, I'm going to pray like the Maliki Madhab is going to be on fleek, you know, like, I'm like really play the Maliki Madhab now. Al-Maziri starts, Allahu Akbar, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. The guy was like, whoa. So he goes to the Imam afterwards and he said, man, you, you said Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Why? He said, because we're praying with people who see reciting the Basmala as an obligation in Salah. So to bring the hearts together, Alhamdulillah. I, I read the Salah like they read the Salah. MashaAllah. Our books of fiqh are filled with this kind of uh, mercy, this kind of maturity, and this kind of acceptance. I remember the first day I started training as a mufti, I asked Sheikh Muhammad Wissam, how many madhabs do you use? Just Shafi? Because he's Shafi. He said, La, 91. I said, 91? What he meant to say is, like, I want to bring the community together. A great scholar, a great teacher fosters unity that's principle, not disunity that's irresponsible. So the other thing and what we learn is we need to learn from people who bring us together and teach us how to differ without being disagreeable. Imam al-Ghazali said, whenever you see somebody spreading lies about the scholars, or I heard this about this imam, I heard about this, about this shaykh, you know, I heard this about this guy, sending emails, for example. <clears throat> then he said you should abandon those people because they're trying to destroy the community. Imam al-Subki, rahimahullah, he said every Muslim student I ever taught succeeded except those who tried to learn and engage in all the differences. Like, not in an a way to appreciate the differences but in a way to use those for power.
the American Muslim community, we have a number of challenges when it comes to knowledge. Number one is our religious knowledge, because we all come from different countries, different communities, different places, who were taught by different teachers, who had different understandings. At times, those are, 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 are used as a catalyst to create insecurity and fear. Whereas the opposite, we should understand and respect that those differences make us a community prepared for the complexities of life. You know who taught me Arabic? The most important Arabic teacher I ever had? Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Tahir, a Somali. Thank you so much. So, I didn't ask for coffee, but I appreciate it, man. So, may Allah give you coffee in Jannah, inshallah. <laughs> Light roast. But like, he's Somali, he taught me Arabic. Who did I memorize the Quran with? From Senegal. Who did I read with Bukhari from Egypt? The Muatta, I read the Muatta with someone from Lucknow, from India. The point is like we, we, we at times may not realize that these different articulations are acceptable, in fact commendable, and we allow those to, the knowledge to become a way in which we don't trust each other. Something different scares us. Like we actually fight over Tarawi. Think about that. We argue over how to worship. One of my teachers, his opinion was eight. I don't agree with him, but his opinion was eight. And I said, man, but the people pray 20. He said, alhamdulillah, let them pray 50. Like let them, let them draw near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't bother me. So our knowledge, and that's why I tell Muslims, if you see a Muslim doing something that you don't know, it's because you don't know. It's not because it's wrong. And that creates a community where the knowledge, and that's the third thing, knowledge is not to make you like a personal sheriff. Like you go around giving people citations because they don't pray like you pray or they don't worship the way you worship. That's the job of the imam. The imam in this community is trained, he's respected, he's knowledgeable. He's the person that can teach people about those things. Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, the great Maliki jurist from Spain and Morocco. He was the greatest student of Imam al-Ghazali. He wrote a tafsir of Qur'an and Waru al-Fajr, which is 55 volumes, it's lost. Imam al-Qurtubi's tafsir, if you know Qurtubi, his tafsir is abridgment of Qadi Abu Bakr's tafsir. So al-Qurtubi's tafsir is considered like amazing. So how amazing was the guy who was 55 volumes, right? That's Al-Qadi, Abu Bakr. And he is also very funny, he has a great sense of humor. He said, you know, one time I prayed in Masjid Al-Aqsa. And it was Asr prayer. And after I prayed, the guy on my right said, said Sheikh, are you, are you the famous Al-Qadi? Qadi Abu Bakr? He said, yeah. He said, did you see the guy praying next to you? That guy's here. That guy's here. In the middle is the Sheikh. The Sheikh, he said, what? He said, yeah, the guy to your left, he prayed wrong. Al-Qadi said to him, how did you see him? I didn't see him. I'm in between you. He's like, no, man, he prayed wrong. Then the guy on his left said, Sheikh, la wallahi, he moved his finger wrong. 
Al-Qadi Abu Bakr said, I didn't notice either of you. Kuntum mashghulan billah. I was busy with Allah. I didn't see you. I didn't see you. Like how many times have you gone to the mosque and you were just like, Kuntum mashghulan billah. I'm busy with God, man. So the knowledge, we need to be careful of certain forms of Sunnism which have been perpetuated by governments in the Sunni world whose main purpose is to divide us. I'm not just talking about the Saudis. I don't like that. I don't like that kind of stuff. But we need to be aware of certain forms of Salafism and certain forms of Sufism who have been pushed by intelligence agencies in Sunni communities in America to divide us, to create hatred amongst us in the name of knowledge. I can differ with you and I can disagree with you. And if you're doing something really, really bad, I can be mad at you. But the door of redemption is always open. The third challenge of knowledge, and that will take us into the second component, is that it should improve our character. It should make us better people, man. And you find the marriage of character and knowledge has always been part of who we are as a community. The great scholars that you know and love, the great scholars that you hear about, it wasn't because of their scholarship that we love them only. It's because of who they were as people. Like Imam Abu Hanifa takes care of his Jewish neighbor. Like that's the real story. Uh, Abdullah ibn Mubarak. You know Abdullah ibn Mubarak is one of the great students of Abu Hanifa and one of the great scholars of the Ummah. And his stories of who he was as a human being are so profound. For example, he also had a non-Muslim neighbor. And one day his non-Muslim neighbor decided to sell his home. And he sold it for double the price. So people ask him, man, why are you selling your house for double the cost? He said, Nisuli wa nisuli jari. He said, half of it is for me and the other half is because I have an awesome neighbor. Abdullah ibn Mubarak is an awesome neighbor. Abdullah ibn Mubarak is such a good neighbor that he impacts the cost of housing with his presence. I saw this in Boston. The former mayor of Boston said, bring the Somali community into the hood and the hood will change. What he meant was like, the Muslims, man, they don't do ratchetness. So wherever the Muslims come as a collective community, crime goes down, drug usage goes down, housing prices rise. There's actually a study now in New York City, believe it or not, that immigrant Muslim communities and indigenous Muslim communities contributed to the gentrification of New York City because when we move into a neighborhood, most of us, alhamdulillah, aren't doing craziness. So we make the way for hot yoga studios and latte bars and <coughs> because we don't understand our presence and we don't use our presence to fight for fair housing and cheap housing for people. But the point is, we have an impact. 
That takes us to the second component after knowledge. What should you learn? People ask that all the time. Number one, you should learn how to pray properly. Not the arguments of where your hand is. All that's debatable. Should you put your hands here? That's all debatable. Stay away from people to tell you, if you're not doing like this, your salah is not accepted. That's insanity. That's from Hayat al-Salah, not from the Arkan of Salah. Imam Ibn Qudama said, how many people are so caught up in this and they forget about this? <coughs> the second thing is that we have to increase our emotional IQ. We don't love each other, man. You really get a sense that Muslims, we don't like each other. That's unfortunate because we're a great community, man. Our capacity to love, our capacity to be transformative and our mercy towards each other goes back to the Prophet We are a community of Rahmah. The Shawqi said about the Prophet, Prophet said, Shawqi said about the Prophet, Ahmed Shawqi is a great Egyptian poet. You know, when you're merciful, you're like a mother or father. Like, you're so merciful. The second thing that we have to think about, especially in the face of Islamophobia, in the face of the challenges that we see, the trauma facing Muslim communities, and we need to be able to appreciate that the up-and-coming environmental challenges that are going to impact this world are going to impact poor Muslim communities overseas first and others. The poor are going to get hit hard by changes in the economy and changes in the environment. In the face of those kind of challenges, and in America now with deregulation, the attack on the unions, uh, the destruction of the ability for collective bargaining, you're going to see the middle class fall through the bottom of the roof. People can talk about that they've created more jobs in America, but what kind of jobs are being created? They're not able to sustain. Now they say 40 million Americans cannot live a middle class lifestyle. They're projecting in the next few years that will reach 56 million people. What does that mean? For us as a community, when we're dealing with political challenges overseas, environmental challenges, we see the floods that have happened, the heat wave in Pakistan and in India that happened, uh, the political crisis like the Rohingya, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, Central Africa. We need to be a loving community. Our young American Muslims, sisters, yesterday, scared to wear hijab, scared to go on job interviews, Converts who have been cast aside by their parents or their family members, their care providers, to convert in America in some cases to commit social suicide, man. New immigrants that come to America who are trying to make their way this anti-immigrant attitude, this nativism that's being pushed. Don't you think that we should create a loving community for people right now? A place where people feel that we care about them? The mosque is a place that loves you. The community is a place that honors and respects you. The community is a place that you can come for help instead of simply just a place to be judged or to be pushed aside or to be militarized because of your gender or your race, or your ethnicity, the color of your skin. Look at the beginning of prophethood. 
We said knowledge, we talked about introspection. After the Prophet is terrified, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he runs. And who does he go to? Who's the first person he goes to after prophethood is revealed to him? His blessed wife, Sayyidah Khadija. And what is the Prophet looking for when he bursts into their home and what does he say? Some people say it happened twice. He's looking for emotional support. We need to think about how we can be loving people. All of us want to be loved, but we don't want to love back. Why does this community welcome me? Why don't you welcome the community? Nobody said salam to me. You didn't say salam to anybody. Don't get me wrong. I've been in communities where I had to leave. Been in communities where people ask me, like, are you working for the FBI? I've been in communities where people ask me, did you really say that gay marriage is permissible? Been in communities where because I'm a white Muslim, I'm seen as, you know, an agent, the devil. You ask our black Muslim brothers and sisters, man, how it feels to be treated by the dominant white supremacist ethos in this country in a house of worship. Those are concerns. Ask women how it feels to be militarized because of their gender. Ask young men how it feels to be invisible in a community and not recognized. Ask divorcees how it feels to be a Muslim in a community when you're divorced. Ask new brothers and sisters that are coming to America and just trying to like make it work, man. Just trying to make it work. And they're pushed away because they don't fit the dominant ethos that runs the community, which is about success. If you look at our boards, man, our boards are primarily people who are financially well off. That's wrong. It's not just about being financially well off and being able to donate to that nonprofit. It's about being a person of integrity and service. So the prophet finds support to his wife. The Prophet To make a fellow Muslim happy obligates for you paradise. This is an authentic hadith. Communities have to be invested not only in the education of congregants and the donor potential of congregants, we also have to love each other, man. The Prophet said, لا تدخلوا جنة حتى تؤمنوا ولا تؤمنوا حتى تحابوا Prophet said, you will never enter paradise until you believe. You will never believe until you love each other. So that means now is a strategy. How do we help each other go through hard times? So when I was in Boston, I was an imam in Boston for three years. One of the things I noticed is that we had people who were coming from communities that had been impacted by incredible trauma. And we noticed that marriages were struggling, man. Marriages were on the ropes. And then people were like, oh my gosh, like Muslims are getting divorced. Oh my God, that's what we do. We turn it into this like slogan. But I don't care about slogans. I was like, why are they getting divorced? Oftentimes it's Detestable in-laws, man. Jealous mothers. You love her more than you love me. 
Well, mama, I hope you raised your son to love your wife. That's a good thing. You know, or how dare you, you know, take my daughter to another city. Well, why did we get married? We're not supposed to be airbnb it with you. So Malcolm X said, in-laws, outlaws, man. The other reason is that we found people were coming into marriages that had serious emotional and psychological trauma. You know, you have to not only love, but we have to learn how to receive love. And receiving love is about being vulnerable and comfortable. So we partnered with our clinicians in the Muslim community. They came to me, they said, Imam, can you provide marriage counseling? Absolutely not. Why? I'm an imam, I'm not a counselor. I can help you destroy your marriage. <laughs> and the other imams were like, Staffullah, brother, we're supposed to do that. I said, where'd you go to school? I went to Dioband. Okay, in Dioban, man. Did they teach you in Dioban about the principles of like family counseling? Absolutely not. And why would you do it? In Azhar, they didn't teach me how to do that. Allah said, don't get involved in what you don't know, man. And plus, we know most of us need counseling anyways, because imams, we're under a lot of pressure. Getting hit hard. So we partnered with our local clinicians, professionals. We opened up a mental health counseling service in the mosque that dealt with substance abuse issues, pornographic addiction, trauma, you name it. We saved 33 marriages, alhamdulillah. So how do you invest in like looking after the needs of the community is think about reaching out to your professionals who can really serve. The Imam's job, at least I'm speaking my personal capacity, is to give you the hukum, the fatwa, the Islamic guidance on issues. If the counselor needs religious advice, I'm there to provide that religious advice. Third thing that we did is we started making community members sit together and talk. They didn't like it, you know? And we started events that brought in the social cohesion of the community. When was the last time y'all just kicked it? Like just kicked it as a community? Had a picnic. And the rule of the picnic is you can't sit with your ethnic group. You can't sit with your age group. People initially hated it, but then they loved it. And we, would, we gave people this, this, this idea that when you sit with someone, listen to their personal narrative. Tell me about your life. Man, people began to really love each other, begin to care for each other. And I remember I talked with this brother. There was this brother who used to bother me all the time. He's always out of line in the mosque. What's wrong with this dude, man? So I said, I'm going to do a one-on-one -on -one with this guy. So we sat down and we talked and he told me that, you know, I had to escape my country by swimming up a river and I saw my brother drown. And I said, man, I'm really sorry, man. I didn't understand that you had this kind of trauma. But we became like really close. So creating opportunities, for example, if there's other imams, I tell imams all the time, if you don't get along, have you ever actually talked to that imam? You ever had dinner? Ever talked, broke bread, shared, shared some aru paratha? 
you know, had a real conversation? Or is it what other community members are telling you that person is saying? That's fitna. So the third is investing in each other, getting to know each other. Same thing with board members. Oh, these board members are so bad. Okay, what's the name of the board member's kids? I don't know, but he's so bad. Then you don't know that person. You don't know her. But why don't you sit down and like just have a friendly conversation and get to know people? So the second, third component, and we're running out of time, is increasing our emotional capacity for each other. Learning how to care about each other. I don't have to like you as a Muslim, by the way, but I have to treat you well. Right? And we learn that from the Prophet When Abu Lu'lu comes to the Prophet and wants to hang out with the Prophet Al-Wahshi comes to the Prophet who killed Hamza. He's like, hey! And the Prophet's like, no. Assalamu alaikum, you're welcome here, but I don't want to deal with you. You killed Hamza, man. You killed my uncle. I'm going to treat you as a Muslim. MashaAllah. Alhamdulillah. But we're not like that. It's okay. The last two components, and we'll finish, is that we need to think about strategic engagement. Every single prophet is invested in social justice issues. For example, Sayyidina Yusuf. And this always freaks Muslims out. You do know all the prophets were black, right? They were people of color. Or people of color. You know, Prophet Muhammad is tawny, kind of olivey. I've had people, and this will tell you the disease in our heart, man. White supremacy is no joke, man. That post-colonial white supremacy, that turned us out. So I will say, it's okay, Faisal, man. I know you let your baby run, Faisal. I, I believe that kids should be able to run in the masjid and like be here because once they become money earners, we want them back. Faisal, man, check your kid, man. So, whenever I tell people, you know, Sayyidina Yusuf was a person of color, there'll always be a person outside that's like, no, he was white. Like, how was Yusuf white? You know, we've been, and I'm saying this as a white man, because white converts, we have, a, we have one heck of a job. We are now officially Moses in the house of Pharaoh. Or we're going to be Judas with Christ. But subhanAllah, Prophet Yusuf was like homeless. He was an abused child. He was sexually trafficked. He was part of the prison industrial complex. We're not speaking to the needs of America because we truly don't care about America. And that's a problem. I understand overseas things are very important, but we don't live overseas, we live here. And we have to begin to think about how do we really project our teachings and our faith into contemporary issues that are plaguing this country right now. Wealth distribution, classism, Immorality. We have a place, we have a, a, a voice. 
that can be projected into these challenges, but we have to build with others to do it. So whenever you talk about community organizing, someone always raises their hand, well, what if we don't agree with certain things that that community does? I don't agree with everything I do, but I talk through it. Prison industrial complex, man. Three out of four black Americans in Washington, D.C., men will be in prison. That's crazy, man. That's insane. No religious person, nobody who claims to love the Prophet can sit back and watch the discrepancy between color and incarceration in this country and remain silent. We have a woman today in Texas who was released from prison, voted, registered to vote, and today was sentenced to five years in prison for violating her probation because she voted as a felon who came out of prison. Seriously? And, and that's how Allah works. I don't care how pious you are, I don't care how awesome your sheikh is, I don't care how many hadith you can narrate, I don't care how much Qur'an you know, man. If you don't care about the marginalized and the vulnerable, you will be pushed out of the way by the plan of God. Allah says, we will replace you and bring other people in. So coalition building, having strategic alliances. The Prophet teaches that. Who was the guide of the Prophet to Medina? He wasn't even Muslim on Hijrah. In Sahih Bukhari, when the Prophet comes back for Surah Hudaybiyah and his camel stops and he points at Medina, he says, those people in Medina, if they ask me to work on Sha'ir Allah or Al-Ma'roof, or Sirat Al-Rahm, if the people of Medina, at the height of their hatred for the Prophet, if they ask me to organize with them and work with them on good issues, I will do it. If that's with the Quraysh, who are the worst people on the face of the earth, then no one in America can justify that they can't work with other people because they don't agree with them on certain issues. Number one is, if you're really about it, when you go into organizing with people, you say, these are non-negotiables for our community. These are things which we cannot forego. And here are the negotiables. Let's find some intersectionality on the things that we both are concerned on. Immigration, man. That's impacting the Muslim community. Hello, it's called the Muslim ban. The Muslim ban. Number two, the issues with hyper-incarceration in this country. After Bill Clinton, do you realize that the number of people in prison in the United States after eight years of a Clinton presidency rose 60%. There are more people now in prison in America for drugs than were in prison in America in totality in 1980. And we might not think that that has anything to do with us, but 50% of our community are black folks. And black folks are those who are unfairly targeted by ridiculous sentencing guidelines and hyper-incarceration. Do you realize that in California, in the wildfires, People that were incarcerated were out there fighting those fires, making a dollar an hour or a dollar a day. That's indentured servitude. If we don't feel like we have responsibility to somehow speak on that issue, 
and inject our theology on these issues, why are we Muslims? Why would you follow the Prophet Muhammad if you're not able to inject prophetic values into the problems around you? What's the purpose? And to celebrate prophetic success with communities around us. So we see in Surah Mudathir, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, as Surah Muzammil, Surah Mudathir, two situations, ma sadaqakum fi saqar. You'll be asked, why are you in hell? Qalu lam min al-musallin. We didn't pray. Walam nakunutu'imu al-miskeen. And we didn't feed the poor. This is always in Quran. Religious ritual, company with issues of social justice and equality. Always. You can't find it. Except to always take the Ara'ayta alladhi yukadhibu bideen fadharika alladhi. Same thing. So a prophetic community can't be prophetic if the only thing it hopes to do, it can't reach its prophetic potential if it doesn't care about people. And the last is the role of young professionals, man, and successful people. That's why I tell converts, man, go to college, man. Get a degree, or at least have a hustle. When I converted, I was a gang member, I was 19 years old. I was stupid. And I remember, I went to my teacher, and there was a brother that was telling me I enrolled in college. My, my degree was in education, alhamdulillah, but I, I enrolled in college. And I remember there was a brother in the mosque that told me, Man, you shouldn't go study with these kuffar. You shouldn't study with these kuffar. You should be on the sunnah. So, you know, converts were easily influenced. So, I went to my sheikh and I said, I think I'm going to quit college. He said, what's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you? I said, sheikh, man, man minhum, man, wala wal bara, man, kuffar, blah, blah, blah. And the Shaykh said to me, I'm not going to teach you Quran unless you go to college. Man, God bless him for that. He said, and I'm not going to teach you Quran unless you do good in college. So I, killed, I went and killed for the sake of Allah. Point is, Allah says, وَابْتَغُونَ مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ The end of Surah Al-Muzammil, those who ابْتَغُوا مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ Those who work to find the blessings of God. Imam Al-Razi said, those are people who work. Those are people who have jobs. So we also have to think about economic independence. Supporting each other economically. Keeping the dollar in our community. Making strategic investments. The way that we fundraise has to change. Right? Creating different revenue opportunities for nonprofits, As well as within our own life. So you learn early on, and I'm stopping now, that there are a number of key anchors that should be values that we carry with us that the Prophet carries through his life as a Prophet. Introspection and humility. Knowledge, which is used to build unity. Of course, knowledge also teaches us what we can agree on. That's the beauty of knowledge, but we can do that without being disagreeable. Number three, 
becoming a community that truly loves and cares for each other. Not just to compare, like Muslim community, I've seen this in the Christian church, we're very religiously competitive. It's not, it's not good, man. Not to the point where we, un, we don't respect each other, we don't care about each other. Third, that creating those opportunities for emotional growth and support. Community needs support, man. People that have gone through marriage crisis in our community are a lot, but they feel ostracized by the community, man. That's not a good thing. Young people, I have sisters, subhanAllah, reaching out to me in Ramadan saying that they are going through anorexia and bulimia and that fasting triggers that anorexia and their parents have told them they have a jinn. Like destroying their sense of self-esteem. It's like we can find people that can help people. In Boston, we started to tell people we need to have an Alcoholics Anonymous in the community. People lost their minds, man. Stuff a lot, brother, you're encouraging people to drink. I'm not telling people go drink. I'm telling people come to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's two different issues. But we always have those, a community, we have those few people that are super insecure, that have very little knowledge. They just want to destroy everything. Insecurity makes us want to destroy. But confidence and security makes us want to build. So we got it, we pulled it off. And people were shocked at the large numbers of people that we were able to help in the Muslim community with gang issues, drug issues, and substance abuse issues. Because those are issues that plague our community. We kept it private, it was secret, completely, you know, uh, privacy was respected, but we serve people. And the last is the role of being financially autonomous. Not being a multimillionaire, if you want to be, mashallah, kill it for the sake of Allah. But especially for converts and young people. Imam Shafi used to say, In kuntum mashwuran bil bas'ala la ufakir fil mas'ala. Sayyidina Shafi used to say, If I'm busy thinking about onions, I can't think about fiqh. Meaning, if I'm busy thinking about the staple foods, then I can't serve people. Sayyidina Umar said, if poverty was a man, I would order him to be killed. So getting an education, right? Having a strategy, having a hustle. If I'm asking for zakat this year, let me set a goal for myself that next year I'm not going to be asking for zakat anymore. I'm going to be giving zakat in two years. That's the kind of attitude I should have. So here are just a few foundational principles I think that will help us deal with the challenges of our community. Introspection, religious knowledge, learning to emotionally care and love each other and get beyond these constructions that are really divisive. You know, one of the things that I feel under the last eight, nine years is just like underappreciating how awesome a human being is, man. Allah said, we honored people. Like, we are a creation of God. It's incredible, man. It's absolutely astounding, subhanAllah. The fourth, or the third, we say, yeah, third, emotional support and care. The fourth, investing in social justice movements and strategically coalition building. Being able to navigate those where we maintain our orthodoxy, but are able to serve community. And then the last is financial autonomy. We'll take a few questions, inshallah, before Maghrib, and then tomorrow we'll continue, inshallah, with Surah Hujurat. Uh, which is, you know, going to be much more like a religious class.
So it's much more of a set of reflections, inshallah.